Well, good morning, church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us this book of James. And we pray, Father, as we look at our faith, that by the end of this series, our faith will be working far more wonderfully than it already is. God, if we're yet to come to faith, would you reveal yourself to us and and call us to yourself through the gracious words of the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. So we are beginning this new series from the book of James, as Ben was just saying. The book is all about having a working faith, and James certainly leads by example. Just look with me, please, at how his epistle begins. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James is, in fact, the brother of Jesus, not just in the spiritual sense like we all are, brothers and sisters of Christ and in Christ, but in the biological sense that Mary really was his mum. Matthew, Mark, Acts, and Galatians all say this, and so I'm just amazed that he didn't lead with that one. If my big brother was Jesus biologically, I would be name-dropping quite a bit. Every single time someone came round to my house, the conversation would come round to it. You know, can I, can I get you a chair? Funny story while we're on the subject of chairs. Did I tell you about the time when Jesus and me made a chair in our father's workshop? Or would you like a sandwich maybe for your lunch? Because I have a funny story about those. Mum used to make sandwiches for me and Jesus when we were growing up. And it would just be like this. Every sentence, I think, the me and Jesus talk would never ever end. You know, we, we all know those people, don't we, that meet a celebrity and spend their entire life trying to work the conversation around to that name. But this is a very close relationship, and yet from the way that James begins his letter, you'd think that he was a complete nobody. Instead of boasting and cashing in on this remarkable link, He just calls himself a servant of Christ, just like us. And he calls us the brothers of Christ, just like him. And this is because James understands something. He understands that through faith, we can have a far greater link with Jesus than any mere biological one. We can all have, if you like, a me and Jesus story with a working faith. It's all about faith and all about a working faith with James. Now, James is going to be a difficult book to preach. Almost every single verse in James could be a sermon in its own right, if not a sermon series. And the Tyndale IVP commentary on James reads like the teacher's remarks on one of my old high school essays. I'll just quote from it. A clear and systematic progression of thought is difficult to find in James. He prefers to move from topic to topic, sometimes joining them with a loose connection in subject matter. Rude! What a terrible thing to say about a book of the Bible. Uh, When you get to his major point, it gets even worse. Luther famously was so puzzled and perplexed by the book of James, that he even questioned whether it should be in the Bible at all. So there's a lot to unpack this for. A complicated book that cuts across some of our preconceptions about our faith, and 
it does so in a very nuanced and layered way. James has a complex writing style. What we know so far, though, is he's a very humble guy. And complex and all over the place, though it might seem to us, it is, in fact, a very, very simple point. Faith in Jesus is more important than anything else in the whole world. And faith in Jesus is not a head knowledge thing. It is deeply practical in the way that it works. Every day, everything, every challenge even, therefore becomes an opportunity for your faith to work harder, for your faith to get a workout and to grow and and to work better. So let's uh, start with some of those challenges today, shall we? Some of those little trials and tests that we go through that see whether our faith is working and maybe even get it working well. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, he says, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, these trials can be external tests. For example, things to do with money or things to do with your health. It could be social things like bullying at work or a fallout in the family, perhaps. It could be anything like that. And if you're a pastor or the manager of a church, they're most likely to do with live streaming software and bandwidth and microphones. Trials of all sorts of kinds emerged this week as we fixed the sound and it disappeared. hope you can hear me. But uh, James here, I think, is talking about these external things that, that make life difficult, but he then moves on to the internal things as well, because you know we're all capable of messing up our own lives just as well uh, as other people can do it to us. In verse 15, he certainly gets onto these internal struggles, things like temptations and sin and, and trouble we make for ourselves. There's the external, there's the internal, there is trials and temptations and tests of all sorts of kinds here. And then James says, did you know that in such times as this, you can actually find joy if you have a working faith? Now, why on earth would a bad time like this give you joy? That's a good question. Why would a a trial or a trouble, something like this, give you joy? Well, he continues, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, meaning cheerfulness or endurance or even hope. In other words, trials are not good. They're never good. They're never nice. The trial itself, the difficulty itself, gives you no joy at all, but a faith that comes through one does. And a sort of feedback mechanism starts to develop here. A faith that withstands a trial tends to be stronger for the next one. Every single time our faith withstands one of these difficult moments, it just grows and builds for the next time one comes along. I've certainly noticed that this season, that under the pressure of this pandemic, many members of our church have grown in their faith. Many of us have have found our faith has been exercised and, and is now working more efficiently. Many of us have changed or renewed our patterns of study and worship. 
Lots of you have told me about how you're getting up a bit earlier or reading the Bible a bit more or listening to more Christian music or praying more or meeting with members of the church in a different way, listening more, more engaged with God. That has been the result of this trial for many of us. And then last week at the 11 a.m. service, we got to see it. We got to see a working faith at 11 a.m. So for years, I've just been desperate for this church to come alive at certain moments. Maybe people sharing testimony at the mic or, or during the prayers of the people, just a, a sense that, that people wanted to pray out loud. And uh, I've often thought how wonderful it would be if the church just erupted in prayer and didn't want to stop. And, and like Ben Hughes said, leading that service, if the prayers of the people were actually prayed by the people. How, how awesome that would be. And then last week, they were. It was amazing. And what's interesting to me about that experience of prayer last week was that I was sitting off at the side and at the back outside of the tents, and I couldn't quite hear everything that people were saying from, from my seat. And I was being distracted, and I was being hit on the head by acorns from the great oak tree. And I thought the prayer was going on too long. I thought that it was dragging, and, you know, we had to shut it down. Little tip for you, by the way. This bit. This. This means pastor says, shut up. It's gone on too long. That's what this means, a little quiet, creeping pastor. And so I crept up to the front discreetly to kind of stop the prayer. When I got to the front, I realized that I was completely wrong. I realized that the experience Ben had been having as the leader of the service was entirely different to the one I'd been having stuck out on the fringes and that I had been thoroughly out of step with what it was that the Holy Spirit was doing in our midst and that Ben had seen the moment because what I saw when I got to the front of the church was a church with a working faith. There were people just praying all over the place and they didn't want to stop. There were no awkward pauses. There were lots of wonderful prayers prayed out loud. And we started to reflect in our staff meeting about what it was that had caused this thing to occur. Was it the sunshine? Was it the t-shirts? Was it the tents that liberated us to speak and not this dusty room? Uh, maybe. It is less formal out there, but I think James would say no. James would say it's not the tents and the t-shirts, it's the Holy Spirit. James would say it is a church with a working faith that will not shut up when the pastor creeps to the front. Amen, long may it continue. James says it's not the tents, it is a test that has tested your faith, given it a workout, seen it grow, and look, there it is for us all to see and hear. An amplification of a working faith. And so faith has an impact. And tests have an impact on our faith. And a faith that gets a workout and a test grows and tends to beget more faith, such that you can even find joy like we did last week, even in a time of trial like this, and more in the next one. And this joy now that begets faith upon faith for the next trial leads ultimately to something that never ends. James jumps around a little bit, as I've said, I therefore feel we can as well. And if you jump ahead to verse 12, you see that he returns to this theme of the trial 
but now in a different context. And he says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, very similar words to the ones we've seen already. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So thinking beyond the here and now, beyond the world. He starts to think about the end and eternal life and ultimately the kind of joy that you find that never ends. It's a very positive case for faith, that it builds and it goes to work and it prepares you for this test and the next test and ultimately is a reward that you enjoy in eternity, a very positive set of arguments to acquire a working faith. Now for some negative arguments. What does a trial look like if you have no faith? Well, it's a very timely question. Because although the world has certainly been through far worse than we're going through now, the pandemic is clearly a time of, of trial, and most of the human race does not have a faith. And there's a, a new phenomenon that I've read about recently called doom-scrolling. Doom-scrolling is perhaps the new faith. Uh, media companies, social media companies have discovered that nothing creates clicks like bad news. And so we have this addictive capacity just to keep scrolling on our, uh, our tablets and iPads looking for more and more bad news and things that are going wrong. And doom is addictive. And so our screens are saturated with doom right now. James doesn't judge those with a broken faith who are hooked on this stuff. Biological brother though he was to Jesus, there was a time when he did not know Christ. You know, even up to the cross. He didn't know who Jesus really was. It's hard to believe, isn't it, with all of the advantages he had, but he didn't have a faith. And so James, I suspect, looking back at that moment frequently, does not judge. He's not a judgy guy. Perhaps recalling, though, the sense of confusion and torment and drift that he lived with in those days, he says this in verse 6, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, the word doubt is, is difficult to translate. Uh, it's not the kind of doubt that we all have. You know, we all have doubts. Even a member with the strongest faith will have doubts, fleeting moments of, is this real? Through to really deep existential wrestling with serious matters of theology. All of us doubt. This word isn't what we mean when we say doubt. I think really, if it were a word, it means unfaith, is what he means. It means, literally, technically, to withdraw or to be hostile, an anti-faith. To have faith in something else is a good translation of this word. And the phrase uh, double-minded that he adds to this, dipsychos, it means to have two minds or to have two faiths, if you like. A little bit of God and a little bit of something else. And if that's you, if instead of God or, or maybe 
as, as well as God. You trust in yourself and a bit of something else in the world around you. James has a question for you. If, if you're your own God and you trust yourself and this world and little else, James's question is this. What happens when the world fails? Or you do. What then? Panic is the answer. You're all at sea. You're in a storm and you're anchored to nothing. You are a wave of the sea, he says, driven and tossed by the wind. That's what you are. You know, a, a wave isn't real. A wave isn't really a thing. You know, it doesn't exist. It's just the effect of a thing on another thing. It's the effect of, of the wind on the water, but it's, it's not really there. I mean, for a minute you can see it, but then it goes away again, doesn't it? And another one comes along that looks like it. Waves are just temporary. There one minute, gone the next, and that's you, says James, without a working faith. As for the things you trust, the things of this world, they don't last either. And verses 10 and 11, I believe alluding to the psalm appointed for today, say, just as the flowers and grass fade away, so do all of our riches and so do those who put their faith in them. One of the most tragic things of an unfaith is instead of joy in suffering, what we find in suffering is fear. This growing fear, all of this what if, all of this doom and, and disasterizing. Humans are weird. We actually suffer suffering. Something bad happens to us and we start to disasterize what more bad stuff can happen and what the results of the bad stuff might look like. We start to imagine doom scenarios. We start to take on some of these things. We start to say, well, what if it gets even worse? Maybe I need to stockpile more toilet paper and then I can get through. Uh, we start to compare ourselves to other people. How come they've got more toilet paper? You know, how come they're okay? They're not okay. Toilet paper isn't actually going to combat COVID-19. Surprise, surprise. Neither will tonic water. Please stop buying it. My wife loves gin and tonic and she can't find any. That's just an aside. <laughs> Doom scrolling, people disasterizing, people just, you know, saying, oh, man, if only I had this thing, then I'd be okay. How come they've got that thing? I wish I was okay. And we live in fear. We live in fear of losing things. And in the chaos of our fear, we try and control the fear by surrounding ourselves with more and more things that deep down, if we're going to be really honest, we know will not last. So we pour all of this effort and all of this work into trying to keep these things safe. And deep down, we fear the back of our minds, the big question, what if we can't? James will say to us, there is no point in this fear. This fear of loss is entirely pointless. We will all lose it all in the end. Get over it. But the people of faith will gain infinitely more, no matter how broken they've been in this life, no matter what they've suffered in this life. God is offering infinitely more. And he says this in verse 17. He says, unlike this temporary world, God does not change. And the unchanging God, the Father of lights, I believe it says there, 
It gives to us from this position of unchanging perfection gifts that are perfect, perfect gifts. The word perfect here, teleos, actually means the end. He gives us unending end-time gifts that never end. That's the promise right here. It's like James can't stay negative for very long. He's not British. We could do it for years. He's, he's, I think he's an American. He just, he just keeps coming back down around to his positivism. It's fantastic. You know, in the end, God is going to give us these unending gifts, lavish them on you that far exceed anything that you've been fearful of losing in this temporary world. How do you get it? How do you get this wonderful, wonderful thing for the end? He says, by receiving. It's a gift. The word of truth. You see that in verse 18. The word of truth is the gospel. It's the good news. It's shorthand for that thing on the cross that he came to believe in. That Jesus went through a trial like no other. And that James didn't believe in this until he saw it and then until just afterwards. He realizes that Jesus suffered like no one other. And then having died a death like no other for us. Jesus rose from the grave like no other to a life like no other. And that from this position of perfection, he offers the very same to us. How do we get it? By grace, through a working faith. Let's pray. Loving Father, uh, we are indeed, many of us, struggling at the moment through myriad difficult things. There are internal torments of our own. There are deeply difficult things happening to us from out with. And yet, Father, you do not change. And so as this naughty world passes away into obscurity, help us please not to anchor ourselves to the temporary things of this earth and not to be blown around by moments like this, but instead to be called deeper in our trust of you as we sung in that wonderful ocean song, God. Would you call us out upon the water and would we please find that you do not fail? God, do not let us be overwhelmed, but call us solidly into a working faith. In the name of Jesus. Amen.